This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On the 10th of January, 2004, a woman is shot to death in her bed and a man in the neighboring house is also shot and wounded. This all takes place in the small village of Knutby, east of Uppsala in Sweden. What seemed to be a tragic case of jealousy gone bad quickly turned into a murder revolving around religion, sex, and a pastor with multiple love affairs. Welcome to episode 16 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. I'm sorry to be on such an unregular schedule with the podcast, but while you're waiting for the next episode to drop, you might want to check out one of the following great podcasts. First, we have Men's Ria podcast, created and hosted by Sinead in Ireland. I love this podcast so much, and instead of me trying to tell you why you shouldn't miss it, let's hear it from the host herself. Mens rea is the legal principle of intent that must be proved in a number of crimes, such as murder. It means literally, the guilty mind. The Mens Rea podcast explores the most notorious crimes from Ireland and the UK and the court cases that followed. Every fortnight, a new case is discussed. So if you like hard-hitting, in-depth true crime podcasts, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe to the Mens Rea podcast today. And another podcast that I'm so excited about is a brand new one. It's created and hosted by Mike Morford, a.k.a. Morph. You might have heard him with Mike Ferguson in Criminology Podcast, which also is a great podcast that you absolutely should check out. But now he's starting up this new podcast called Murder in My Family. Let's hear it from Morph himself. Murder, the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another, a short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. For most of us, murder is just that, a word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal, because they've lost a loved one to murder, and I want to share their stories with you. 
My name is Mike Morford, and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family. I know you really want me to get into the case now, but in about an hour, you will have listened to it, and then you will thank me for all the great podcast suggestions that you are getting here. So just one more. This is a UK-based podcast, hosted by the charming Englishman Paul, and it's called The True Crime Enthusiast. I love it, and I'm sure you will too, but let's hear it from Paul. Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure but in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accent and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come and have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And now it's time to get into the murder, religion sex and manipulation that took place in the small village of Knutby in Sweden. And this episode is written by Johanna Udstål Friberg. Thank you so much, Johanna. Before I go any further, I just want to add a disclaimer about the religious aspect of this murder case. I am not a religious person, even if I was born a Christian Protestant and have my children baptized. I do have the deepest respect for everyone who believes in a higher power such as God, Allah, or any other form of spiritual entity. If I in any way sound disrespectful towards religion in this story, it's not my intention. I despise the choices that these people made. I despise the choices that these people made. And I hold them responsible, no matter how much they put the blame on their religious conviction. But that doesn't mean I take a stand for or against religious beliefs. I just want to be clear about that. Nine books have been published about the murder in Knutby so far. And more are in the making. There is a movie, several theater plays, two documentaries, and numerous features on true crime TV shows. 
This murder is one of the most written about in Swedish criminal history because of what was revealed about the people involved. At around 4.40 a.m. on January 10, 2004, the 30-year-old IT entrepreneur Daniel Linde was shot after answering a knock on the door of his bedroom. He fell to the floor seriously wounded. Two hours later, it was discovered that his employee and neighbor, Alexandra Fosmo, had also been shot. She was found dead in her bed. The murdered woman was married to Helge Fosmo, a pastor in the local Pentecostal church. Before I continue with the story, I want to say a couple of words about religion in Sweden. Sweden is one of the world's most secular and irreligious nations. Several academic sources have in recent years placed atheism rates in Sweden between 46% and 85%. Sweden's official website asserts that just 3 out of 10 Swedes state that they have a belief, and only one in ten Swedes think religion is important in daily life. The Lutheran Church of Sweden, which was a state religion until the year 2000, has a registered membership of six million Swedish citizens, though, equal to 60% of the total population. One reason for the high membership is the fact that until 1996, all newborns with at least one parent being a member of the Church of Sweden were also automatically registered as member of the Church. A recent poll found that only about 15% of Church of Sweden members actually believe in Jesus. Many Swedes do attend church on a regular basis due to traditional or cultural reasons but are otherwise not practicing Christians. I'm one of those people who think the church serves a cultural purpose in our society, but I don't really believe in God. I guess I believe in something, but I don't know if it's God. Anyway, if you bear in mind that most Swedes are not religious, and this murder took place in a Christian congregation with a pastor in the middle of the action. It makes for a media frenzy. It all started in 1992, 12 years before the murder. A 26-year-old woman called Oasa was forced to leave her job in Uppsala Pentecostal Church. The Swedish Pentecostal movement is a Protestant community that came to Sweden in 1906. Pentecostalism is the largest non-Lutheran Christian denomination in Sweden. Regular church attendance is higher among Swedish Pentecostals than Swedish Lutherans of the Church of Sweden, despite the significant difference in the number of members. Anyway, Åsa had been accused of having inappropriate relations with the youth in the church in Uppsala and needed to find another job. So she ended up in the village of Knutby, 
where there was an old Pentecostal church with an aging but very committed congregation. She found a place to stay in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Valdau, who also had a son called Patrick, then 16 years old. They all shared a very deep belief in God, and they all went to church together. The year after, Osa was appointed pastor in the Knutby congregation. She was one of the few female pastors in the whole Pentecostal movement in Sweden back then. After about five years as a pastor, Åsa had started to gain a reputation that reached outside of Knutby with her new ideas and ways of working with the congregation. She initiated a Bible school where people could learn more about Jesus and the Pentecostal beliefs. Many of the old people of the church did not like these new ideas, and many of them left the church. Instead, many Christian young adults from all over Sweden wanted to join Åsa, and they really liked her new way of thinking. She traveled across Sweden, and she recruited many key people from other churches to come to work in Knutby instead. Helge Fosmo and Sara Svensson were two people who met with Åsa on one of her tours and they wanted to commit their lives to her church. Helge moved to Knutby with his wife Helene and their two children to become a pastor in 1997. Sara moved to Knutby two years later. Åsa was very successful in her career but she also found love in the 10 years younger Patrick, who she had stayed with when she first moved to Knutby. They got married when Patrick had turned 18 in 1994. Five years later, in 1999, Osa gets engaged to Jesus in a ceremony of the church and the congregation starts referring to her as the bride of Christ. This is an important detail because part of the reason why Sara moved to Knutby was to protect Åsa from the devil. Sara and Helge became close friends during this time in their mission to protect the bride of Christ from evil. One time they got the flu at the exact same time and the two of them had to stay in bed for 40 days. And yes, I said 40 days. This was interpreted by the congregation as a sign from God that Sara and Helge were good protective shields for the bride of Christ. Åsa's little sister, Alexandra, had just graduated high school in 1999 and she moved to Knutby to be closer to his sister and the Knutby church. She fell in love with a man called Alexander, and they moved in together in a house in Knutby. Åsa and Helge worked very close together as pastors of the church, and they became close personal friends as well. When staying late at church one night, Helge told Åsa that his wife Helene suffers from depression 
they both try to understand God's plan and they come to the conclusion that depression must be the works of the devil. They must try their best to help Helene get rid of the evil inside her. Shortly thereafter, Helge told Åsa that he had been having nightmares about Helene. He had dreamed that Helene hadn't been able to get the devil out of her body and that she had died in a bathtub. Helge started sobbing uncontrollably when he said to Åsa that he wasn't able to save her. He repeated these dreams to the congregation multiple times during the course of this fall in 1999. On December 18th, the same year, Helene was found dead in the bathtub of their home. The whole church is amazed at how close Helge is to God and how he can predict the works of the devil. Helene was found with a mortal dose of painkillers in her body and she was believed to have accidentally fallen and hit her head on the faucet of the bathtub. The police are called to the scene and even though the bathtub was scrubbed clean from all the traces of blood coming from Helene's head, they rule it a suicide and close the case. Only a week after Helene's death, Helge and Alexandra, Åsa's younger sister, announce that they are getting married next year. Life in Knutby was different now when Helene was dead, and Åsa's little sister Alexandra moved in the house with Helge and his three children. But they all stayed committed to the church, and on the belief that Åsa was the bride of Christ. Sara and Åsa develop a deep friendship, and Sara moves in with Åsa to protect her. Because of her close connection with Åsa, the Bride of Christ, Sara's rank and status within the community was very high. This was very much appreciated by Sara, who had been searching for a place to feel safe her whole life. Åsa became like a mother figure for her. Sara had a rough childhood. She was a sickly child and spent a lot of time in the hospital. Her serious food allergies made her limit her diet to meat, potatoes, rice, raspberries, and blueberries. She grew up in a small community in Småland in the southern parts of Sweden. Her parents were old and she had no siblings. While her dad went to work each day, her mom stayed home and took care of Sada. The two were very close. When Sada was 11 years old, her mother died of cancer, and Sara <clears throat> and Sara had to take over a lot of the responsibilities in the house. She developed a serious case of OCD, and she needed everything around her to be neat, clean, and orderly. In her early teens, 
she struggled with thoughts about the meaning of life, and she turned to the local church for support and comfort. She was longing for love and to be seen, and the church could offer her all of that. Sara later said to the police that she never got a chance to grieve her mother and that she had always had a fear of abandonment. After graduating high school, Sara applied to a Bible school called Livskraft. Livskraft could be translated to life power and the Bible school took place in the small town called Arneby. That was where she met Åsa Valdau, later known as the Bride of Christ, for the first time. Åsa was on one of her recruitment and marketing tours. Sara was very fascinated by Åsa's charisma and she wanted to be close to her. After having interned at the church of Knutby and attended their Bible school, she decided to move there permanently to join the congregation for real. She quickly earned the trust of her fellow church community. A lot of people claimed that she had a really good connection with God. And that was why she was chosen to protect the Bride of Christ from Satan. In 1999, she got engaged to a man in the congregation, but she always felt like they were not meant to be. Despite her doubts, she married him in August of 2000. In the beginning of 2001, Helge Fosmo, the pastor, had to be rushed to the hospital. He was experiencing temporary blindness, stomach pains, and a loss of hearing. The doctors ruled them out as symptoms of stress. After all, he was a widower with three little children to take care of. Helge thought he was being subject to the evil works of the devil. Back in Knutby, he started to realize that when Sara was near him, the symptoms all went away. So they started spending more time together, and one night they became more than friends. No one suspected that they were having an affair. After all, they were both newlyweds. But Sara and Helga's secret relationship were growing stronger by the day. Helga confided in Sara that he had been having dreams about Alexandra. Dreams like those he had had before Helene died. He thinks God is coming for Alexandra very soon. Sarah's marriage ended in May 2001 and she moved in with Helge and Alexandra to officially help with the children. But the real reason was that Helge said that he needed her to be able to fight the devils. At this time, Pastor Helge preached a lot about sex and how it could help a person in many different ways. So shortly after Sara moved into the house, Alexandra moved to the guest bedroom and Sara took her place in the master bedroom. Helge and Sara had sex all the time. It was to heal him, he told Sara and his wife. Sara later states to the police that she didn't leave the house for over six months. 
Every time she left the room, Helga started to shake and the devils attacked him. So they pretty much had sex around the clock, Sara states later. And how could his wife accept this? Part of the reason is probably because in this cult, or as they would like to portray themselves, congregation, the women were supposed to obey their husbands. The women were not allowed to question a man in any way. A real modern way of living. Sorry, back to the story. Sara opened up to Helge about her doubts about Oasa being the bride of Christ. She said she had been thinking about it for a very long time. She had been taught that God loves everyone unconditionally, no matter who you are. But with Osa getting the special treatment, it didn't seem right. This doubt, she states to Helge, is her big mistake. When they came back to the church and Helge shared what Sara said about Oasa, they all turned on her. The church leaders had known about Sara and Helge's relationship for a long time, but they had not condemned it until now. Sara was now deemed to be a sinner and she was not supposed to be with Helge. But instead of forcing her to move out of Helge's and Alexandra's home, they made her stay in his bedroom to serve as Helge's temptress. She needed to be punished for her sins, and her punishment was to constantly beg for Helge to be with her and for him to resist her. The other members were not allowed to interact with her, and Sara needed to stay isolated from the rest of the community. If Helga and Alexandra had friends over for dinner, Sara was forced to stay in her room and not to talk to anyone. She was only allowed to interact with Helga. Later, Sara describes that he broke her down and then built her up again. He could tell her time and time again how useless she was, that she was possessed by the devil and so on and in the next minute tell her how beautiful she was and make love to her. A textbook example on how to make a person totally dependent of you. Ever since Sara's mom died when she was 11, she had feared abandonment. And this was exactly what happened to her in Knutby. She was abandoned by the people who she cared about the most. They were her world, her reason for living. If she didn't have God and the church, she had nothing. The only person she interacted with was Helge. She became obsessed with being forgiven by God and by getting back to the status that she had in the congregation before this all happened. In Sara's mind, a new perspective started to grow. Perhaps there was something she could do to be forgiven. In the later murder trial, her diary is a part of the defense, and Sara's words from that time is cited. I, Sara, have committed a sin so huge that I no longer have the right to live as a normal person. 
I must learn how to obey Helge, and I must do whatever it takes to earn forgiveness. A year later, in 2003, Helge fell in love with Annette Linde, a fellow member of the church. Annette is married to a man named Daniel Linde, and she is also the sister of Patrick, who is married to Åsa, the bride of Christ. Pastor Helge and Annette starts a secret relationship, and Helge starts a plan for his second wife to leave the earth. One night when he was alone with Sara, who still lived with him and Alexandra, he asked her if she could ever kill a human being, if it was God's will. Sara said no at first, but after thinking about it some more, she says that she could possibly do it for God. If she knew that it was what God wanted, she might consider doing something like that to earn his forgiveness. After that first conversation about killing someone, Sara started receiving anonymous messages on her phone, and she was certain that they were sent by God. The texts were very cryptical, and a lot of them didn't make any sense. The wordings in them were vague, but the essence of them was that Sara needed to do what she was supposed to do, which only made her more confused. Sara was very upset by these texts from God, and she turned to Helge for guidance. Since she was isolated and wasn't allowed to speak to anyone else, he was the only one to turn to. He helped her interpret what God was trying to tell her, and it became very clear that God wanted Sara to kill both Alexandra and Annette's husband, Daniel. But Sara was not a violent person, and she believed that God was a positive force, who only wants what is best for humanity. How can God want two people to die? One of the texts she received this time said, The first one is a must, and the second one you can do out of love. At the same time, Sara was longing to be let back into the community again, and she knew that she had to do something extraordinary to be forgiven by God for her sins. In her confused state, she decided that the texts must be sent by God and that she needed to take action. At first, she did not know how she would go about killing two people. But on November 8, 2003, she had found a way. When Alexandra was asleep, Sara snuck into the bedroom with a hammer. She went up to the sleeping Alexandra and was going to smack her in the head with a hammer. But Alexandra woke up and asked what Sara was doing in her bedroom. Sara said it was a mistake and she was going to get the toothpaste from her bedside table. Alexandra accepted the excuse, turned around and fell back to sleep. An hour later, Sara went in there again 
and hit her multiple times in the head with a hammer. Alexander managed to turn the hammer out of her hand and ran out of the bedroom to the hallway where she had left her phone and glasses. She called Helge for help. Conveniently enough, he was in his car on his way back from the gas station where he had met with Annette. When Helge got back to the house, Sara was sent to her bedroom and Alexandra was taken to the neighbor's house for care. They did not call the police or take Alexandra to the hospital, and the whole incident was covered up as much as possible. Helge then told Sara she wasn't welcome in Knutby anymore, and she got on the bus back to her father's house in Småland at 5.30 in the morning. And this really makes me furious. No one in the community said a word about what had happened to Alexandra that night. Not even when they were questioned by the police about the connection between Sara and Alexandra. The first time people were questioned about the Knutby killing, they didn't say anything negative about Helge, Åsa or the church. It wasn't until two weeks later when the police had revealed the relationship between Helge and Annette that people actually started to talk. What if they had reacted when Alexandra was attacked the first time? Perhaps she would be still be alive today. This makes me so sad and frustrated. During the two months Sarah spends in her father's house, she has contact with Helge 2,200 times over phone and texts. She feels so bad that she wasn't able to complete her mission from God. Sada was an experienced assassin and when the attack with the hammer didn't work she suggested to Helge that she could light the bedroom on fire. But he didn't want his house to get damaged so he suggested a gun. Even if God wanted her to kill two people, she didn't want them to suffer. A gun sounded like a good idea. Swedish gun laws are very strict, and it is very difficult to get your hands on a weapon like that. Sara had no idea where to find a gun, so at first she started asking random people in the small towns of Vaggeryd, Nässjö and Sävsjö in her home region of Småland. Not discouraged by the lack of success, she continued to the city of Jönköping, where she couldn't find anyone who would sell her a gun either. On December 18th, she went to the capital of Sweden, Stockholm, and started talking to a guy who was lurking around the central station. He said to her that he wanted 10,000 Swedish kroner, that's about $1,100, for the gun, and another 500 Swedish kroner for ammunition up front. So she gave him 15,000 kroner, and he promised to come back with the gun. Sara waited for hours for him, but finally she had to accept that she had been scammed. This did not discourage her from trying again on December 27th the same year. 
Again, she struck up a conversation with a man near the city center and asked if he could help her find a gun. The man said he wanted 10,000 Swedish kroner up front and in 24 hours he would come back with a weapon. Sara gave him the money. When she went back to where they had said to meet the day after, he was waiting for her to give her a gun and ammunition. She was relieved and quickly put the weapon in her purse and went home. But the problem was, Sara had never seen a gun in real life before. So when she looked at it more closely in the privacy of her home, she realized that a gun barrel was plugged and the bullets didn't even fit that gun. She went back to where she had talked to the man, but he was nowhere to be found. So she gave the useless gun away to another man who looks like he could use one. I can only imagine what that must have looked like and what the rugged people who hang out in the downtown area of Stockholm must have thought about Sada. She was a sweet little petite blonde with innocent blue eyes, walking the streets looking for a murder weapon. What a sight. At this stage, Sara was almost ready to give up on her quest to be forgiven by God. But she decided to give it a third try, and this time the seller didn't trick her. Two months after the hammer attack on Alexandra, Sara came back to Knutby to finish the job she had started. She wanted and needed forgiveness desperately. This time she had equipped herself with a revolver. She parks the car and puts on her homemade disguise, a thin sock that she had cut holes in for the ice. She hesitates outside, not sure if she should do this. She calls Helge and asks him if she will get grace from God if she kills Alexandra and Daniel. He assures her that she will. Only seconds after the call, he sends a text to her. It says, The door to the washroom is unlocked. She goes inside the house, through the unlocked door, and walks up the stairs, thinking to herself, This is my must. After Sara left Knutby, Alexandra was let back into the master bedroom, and that's where Sara found her sleeping in the early morning of January 10th, 2004. Alexander was lying on her left side, sound asleep. Sara looks around in the bedroom to make sure that there was no one else in the room with her. She didn't want any of Helge's children to witness what she was about to do. After making sure Alexander was alone, Sara placed herself at the foot end of the bed, pointed the gun at Alexandra's upper body, and pulled the trigger. 
When she didn't see Alexandra move upon impact, she walked a couple of steps to the left side of the bed, where she fired two more shots at her, this time in her head. Alexandra did not move, and Sara waited for a couple of minutes before she walked up to look at her more closely. She could see that there was blood coming from her head, so she walked out to the hallway and was about to leave the house when she had a strong, nervous reaction. She felt as if she hadn't done what God had wanted her to do. So she went back to Alexandra again. Alexandra was lying still, but this time Sara saw blood on the floor underneath the bed. So she figured her mission was complete. She left the bedroom for the second time and walked out into the night. When walking the short distance to the neighbor's house, she calls Helge again. He encourages her to continue. She reaches the house of Helge's mistress, Annette, where Annette and Daniel were sound asleep. She reloaded the revolver before entering the house. Daniel Linde was alone in the bedroom when he heard a knock on the door. In a half-sleeping state, he opened the door and saw a short, tiny being wearing a mask standing in front of him. That's all he remembered before he heard a gunfire. One shot hit him in the right chest, causing his lung to collapse and the shoulder blade crushed to pieces. The other bullet hit him in his mouth destroyed his teeth and jaw on its way through his head before stopping only millimeters before it would have slit the aorta apart. Amazingly enough, Daniel survives this attack and he later states to the police, At first, I didn't realize I had been shot. I felt blood coming out of my mouth and I managed to grab my phone and call 112. The bullet is still in there now. The doctor said it would be too risky to take it out. Sara left the house through the back door after Daniel had hit the floor and she ran to her car that was parked outside the house and she started to drive the three hours back to her father's house. On the way there, she threw the revolver from a bridge. The crime scene investigation showed footprints of a small shoe, probably a woman's foot. After initial hearings with Helge, Annette and other members of the community who all mention the former member Sara, the police bring her in for questioning the same day. She denies everything in the first meeting with the police, but it doesn't take long before she starts to open up. When she first told them she had shot both Alexandra and Daniel, she was eager to tell the investigators how she did it all by herself and not because anyone told her to. This made the detectives very suspicious and they put Helge, Åsa and Annette under surveillance. 
Because of this decision, it was soon revealed that Helge was in a relationship with Annette, Daniel's wife. They could hear them talking to each other on the phone multiple times a day. It was only the day after the murder when 26-year-old Sara Svensson confessed to both shootings. She had worked as a nanny in the pastor's family. Two weeks later, the pastor, Helge Fosmo, was also arrested, together with uh, Daniel Linde's wife, Annette. The wiretapping had revealed to the police that they were lovers. They were both suspected of instigating the murder and the murder attempt. But Linda's wife, Annette, was released after two weeks and she was never charged with anything. The police are able to reconstruct the deleted texts from both Sarah's and Helge's phones. During the night of the murder, they sent 18 texts to each other and talked 10 times on the phone. And all the messages that Sarah was convinced that God had sent her turns out to come from a burner phone that Helge had. The revelation that Helge, the pillar of their church, was having yet an affair made his fellow members turn against him and they finally started to cooperate with the police. After hearing the other pastors and people of the Knutby congregation, together with Sarah's statements and the recovered text messages, it all made it very clear that Helge was the instigator of all these events. The story of how Helge's first wife, Helene, had died under mysterious circumstances surfaced again during the course of the investigation. Helene Fosmo had a wound in the back of her head and the toxic concentrations of a painkiller in her blood when she died. And with the murder of his second wife, the police reopened that investigation. Helge is later charged with murder of his first wife, Helene, and instigation of murder and attempted murder on his second wife, Alexandra, and his mistress, husband, Daniel. The court wasn't able to prove that he killed Helene, sadly enough. At the trial, Sara gave a detailed confession. She told the court that she had been influenced by anonymous text messages that were forwarded to her by Helge Fosmo, but at the time she believed they came from God. Her credibility was strengthened by the text of erased messages that could be recovered from her mobile phone at a late stage of, a, of the preparations for the trial. On July 30th, 2004, Helge Fosmo was sentenced to life in prison and Sara Svensson, the person who actually murdered Alexandra Fosmo, was sentenced to closed psychiatric care with a special release examination. How could a pastor convince a 26-year-old woman to kill his wife and his lover's husband? In the press, it's talked about that she was totally brainwashed.
Sara was in the care of the psychiatric system for seven years, and she was released in 2011. She has not made any public statements, but her counselor said to a Christian online news outlet in 2014 that Sara is doing relatively well. She has a job, a place to live, and nice Christian friends. She leads an ordinary life. And what about Pastor Helge Fosmo, you might wonder? Well, being in prison didn't stop Helge from having relationships with women, though. Two years after his sentence, he got remarried. The couple stayed together for nine years, but divorced in 2016. Last year, in 2017, a female employee at his prison was fired because she was found to be having a relationship with Helge Fosmo. I can't believe this guy. He still remains in prison, though. A lot of this horrible tragedy centers around Pastor Helge. And I would like to wrap this up by putting some focus on the murder victim instead. Alexandra Fosmo, or Wikström as she was named before she was married, was born on May 27, 1980. She was the youngest child and had three older sisters, Karina, Åsa and Anna. They were all over 10 years older than her. She grew up with her mother and her stepfather. Her own father left the family shortly after she was born. When she finished high school in June of 1999, she moved to Knutby and started working at Daniel Linde's IT company. Remember, the guy who was shot but survived. Only five months after she moved to Knutby, Helge's wife Helene dies in the bathtub and then she moves in to his house. Alexander marries Helge only 11 months after his wife's death. She was only 20 years old when they got married. And a little over three years later, when she's only 23, her husband has two affairs with two different women, and then he decides to have her killed. Her family and her big sister Oasa a.k.a. the Bride of Christ, did not come to her rescue after she was severely beaten with a hammer, and the whole community chose to stay silent when her husband's first wife died mysteriously. This poor young woman didn't stand a chance. And Daniel Linde, who survived the shots, he left the congregation and still runs his IT company, and he's doing well. And as far as I can find out, I think he's still married to the same woman. So what did we learn from all this? That God doesn't text people? Well, more like how easy it is for someone to be manipulated. And also, an important thing to remember is that if you suspect that someone is in an abusive relationship or is being manipulated by someone, interfere. As we learned in this case, if someone had interfered earlier, 
Alexandra might have been alive today. Thank you so much for listening to episode 16 of True Crime Sweden. But now that we had enough of murder, let's get over to the non-murder part of the podcast. I just want to say a quick thank you to the following new patrons. Thanks to Christina, Maggie, Lena13, David, Meredith, Annelise, Donna, and Deloon. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And I also have a winner to announce. Congratulations to Lise in Norway, who won a dollar horse by her support on Patreon. Your dollar horse is in the mail, Lisa. And now over to the fun fact. Or today, it's not really a fun fact. It's more like a I'm so proud of Sweden fact. It's about a new law that is effective from July 1st, 2018, only a few weeks old. It's a law that in Swedish is called Samtyckeslagen. And if you translate that, it's something like the consent law. Before this law, we had several cases in which a man was found not guilty of rape, even though the woman had said no. He could claim that he didn't hear that she said no, and if she didn't put up a fight, the court couldn't convict him, mostly because it couldn't be proven without doubt that he had understood that she didn't want to have sex. We know today that a woman who gets raped can react in three different ways, either fight or flight or freeze. The most common reaction to rape is to freeze. That means that you are so paralyzed with fear that you cannot move. But with this new law, a man can get convicted of rape if there wasn't consent. It's been some debate in the media and social media about this new law. I've read comments like, now you have to get a written consent before you sleep with a girl, and so on. But of course, that's not what this is all about. Sex should always be something two people agrees upon. It doesn't have to be written or even said. But if you feel the slightest bit of doubt if the person you are trying to have sex with really wants to do it, then you should stop and ask them. My younger brother's badass girlfriend, who works as a behavior analyst in youth crime with the Swedish police, she said it the best. If you don't understand this new law, you are not mature enough to have sex. And I'm going to play my favorite clip about consent for you. You might have heard it, but it's so spot on, so I just have to put it in here. If you're still struggling with consent, just imagine instead of initiating sex, you're making them a cup of tea. You say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they go, oh my god, I would love a cup of tea, thank you. Then you know they want a cup of tea. If you say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they're like, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Then you can make them a cup of tea, or not, but be aware that they might not drink it. And if they don't drink it, then, and this is the important bit, 
don't make them drink it. Just because you made it doesn't mean you're entitled to watch them drink it. And if they say, no thank you, then don't make them tea. At all. Just don't make them tea. Don't make them drink tea. Don't get annoyed at them for not wanting tea. They just don't want tea, okay? They might say, yes please, that's kind of you. And then when the tea arrives, they actually don't want the tea at all. Sure, that's kind of annoying, as you've gone to all the effort of making the tea, but they remain under no obligation to drink the tea. They did want tea, now they don't. Some people change their mind in the time it takes to boil the kettle, brew the tea and add the milk. And it's okay for people to change their mind, and you are still not entitled to watch them drink it. And if they are unconscious, don't make them tea. Unconscious people don't want tea, and they can't answer the question, do you want tea, because they're unconscious. Okay, maybe they were conscious when you asked them if they wanted tea, and they said yes, but in the time it took you to boil the kettle or brew the tea and add the milk, they are now unconscious. You should just put the tea down, make sure the unconscious person is safe, and this is the important part again, don't make them drink the tea. They said yes then, sure, but unconscious people don't want tea. If someone said yes to tea, started drinking it, and then passed out before they'd finished it, don't keep on pouring it down their throat. Take the tea away. Make sure they are safe, because unconscious people don't want tea. Trust me on this. If someone said yes to tea around your house last Saturday, that doesn't mean they want you to make them tea all the time. They don't want you to come around to their place unexpectedly and make them tea and force them to drink it, going, but you wanted tea last week, or to wake up to find you pouring tea down their throat, going, but you wanted tea last night? If you can understand how completely ludicrous it is to force people to have tea when they don't want tea, and you are able to understand when people don't want tea, then how hard is it to understand when it comes to sex? Whether it's tea or sex, consent is everything. And on that note, I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. Wasn't that clip good? Well, maybe I should go and have myself a cup of tea now. Thank you so much for listening and take care of each other. Goodbye. Hey, do.